Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Last time, we saw how the fluid, unfolding situation on the ground in Georgia suddenly shifted operations back into North Alabama. A volatile mixture of equal parts contingency and reaction, along with design and strategy, left the course of the war in the West still up in the air. As Generals Sherman and John Bill Hood carefully monitored one another's movements to guide their own reactions, with a grand design in the back of their minds, forces on the ground, especially the Federals, anxiously watched to get the first positive fact of the developments and see how the final die would be cast. But for General Hood, especially, things were not unfolding ideally according to plan. He described in his retrospective report how Sherman's reaction to his movement in North Georgia left him at somewhat of a disadvantage. Quote, the army reached Gadsden, Alabama on the 20th of October, at which point General G.T. Beauregard, commanding the military division of the West, joined us. It had been my hope that my movements would have caused the enemy to divide his forces, and that I might gain an opportunity to strike him in detail. This, however, he did not do. He held his entire force together in his pursuit, with the exception of the corps which he had left to garrison Atlanta. The morale of the army had already improved, but upon consultation with my corps commanders, it was not thought to yet be in condition to hazard a general engagement while the enemy remained intact. Meanwhile, Sherman was sizing up Hood's intentions as he watched this movement take place. Writing with the benefit of hindsight in his memoir, Sherman described his summation of Hood's actions and his own reaction. Quote, After striking our road at Dalton, Hood was compelled to go on to Chattanooga and Bridgeport, or to pass around by Decatur, and abandon altogether his attempt to make us let go our hold of Atlanta by attacking our communications. It was clear to me that he had no intention to meet us in open battle, and the lightness and celerity of his army convinced me that I could not possibly catch him on a stern chase. We therefore quietly followed him down the Chattooga Valley to the neighborhood of Gadsden, but halted the main armies near the Coosa River, at the mouth of the Chattooga, drawing our supplies of corn and meat from the farms of that comparatively rich valley and of the neighborhood. End quote. The presence of Sherman's army took a heavy toll on the local population living in the surrounding communities in Cherokee County, Alabama, in the valley of the Chattooga River. His statement about drawing supplies of corn and meat piqued my interest, and I decided to look further into the SCC documents to see if I could find any examples of Sherman taking property at this time. What I found was absolutely astonishing. I knew from previous research that Cherokee County had the second highest number of approved claimants to the SCC of any county in Alabama, coming in between Lauderdale, number three, and Walker County, number one. Eighty claimants from Cherokee County had their petitions approved. 
I found that of those 80 approved claimants, 73 of them, a gargantuan 90%, mentioned Sherman in October 1864 as the commander responsible for taking their property, and 68 of them, or 85%, only mentioned Sherman in October 1864. This means that for 85% of the approved claimants in Cherokee County, the entirety of the property they claimed was taken solely by General Sherman as he fed his army on the rich valley of the Chattooga after pursuing Hood out of Georgia in October 1864. This is a starkly dissimilar pattern from what we see in Lauderdale County, where the property that claimants sued for was taken by a greater variety of commanders at more diverse times throughout the war. Although the claims do show a period of unusually heavy requisitions made upon the citizens of Lauderdale County, but we'll see more of that in a future episode. One Lauderdale claimant, John Burrow, for example, claimed property from no less than 10 different commanders on multiple occasions between 1863 and 1865. Mr. Burrow was an outlier. Lauderdale County claimants most frequently mention at least two commanders, an average of two and a half, but 29 out of 72 claimants, 40%, mention three or more commanders. In contrast to the Shoals, which, as we've often seen before, found itself as a crossroads, or a revolving door, a way station for armies on the march, the data from Cherokee County, on the other hand, shows, first of all, how relatively untouched and untraversed this mountainous area of northeast Alabama had been up until this rather late stage in the war, by the Federal Army anyway, and second, just how heavily General Sherman placed the burden of providing the stuff of life to his mammoth army upon the shoulders of the southern citizens, regardless of their avowed loyalties, who had the misfortune to reside along his line of march. For property taken by Sherman's army in October 1864, petitioners from Cherokee County claimed a total of $37,208.65 in 1870s dollars, for which the SCC allowed $27,710.07. Individual claimants received an average of 62.82% of what they claimed. The property claimed amounted to, among other things, 76 horses and mules, 470 pigs, 6,644 bushels of corn, 15,100 bundles of fodder, 14,513 pounds of pork and bacon, 7,160 pounds of beef, 780 gallons of syrup and molasses, 52 gallons of honey, and 281 pounds of salt. Sherman confiscated more swine, beef, and molasses at this one moment in time from Cherokee County claimants than Lauderdale County petitioners claimed from all commanders combined throughout the entire Civil War. Sherman's men were certainly living high on the hog at Galesville, Alabama, at the expense of the local population many of whom have touching and remarkable tales to tell. One claimant, the Reverend Moses Hampton, was a free person of color who purchased his own freedom in about 1850, as he put it, quote, paying for it out of careful earnings made by hard and constant work, end quote. He described the ubiquity of Sherman's forces, quote, their wagons and troops were all over the country, end quote. 
and he described the ideological rhetoric of the soldiers he interacted with, as well as some of the unique perils a person of color faced, even with the Union Army so conspicuously present. Quote, the soldiers told me that they were fighting for the Union and for the colored man, and that we would be made free. I told them I was already free, but they said it would better my condition. They, or some of them, told me that he supposed as I was a colored man that if I would go to headquarters I might get paid for my property that they had taken. But I was afraid to go, for there were small parties of rebel guerrilla bands hovering around the Union Army that were always ready to shoot a colored man that went about the Union Army, so I never left home while the Army was in my neighborhood." End quote. It's remarkable to realize, even as people of color risked their lives in uniform serving the Union Army, even just getting behind Union lines was at the peril of their lives, as paramilitary groups that Hampton described patrolled the fringes of the Union Army camps to prevent people escaping bondage from reaching the relative safety and freedom behind Union lines. Some of the claimants as well were of very humble social standing, and for them, even in the best of times, making ends meet was a struggle. One petitioner, a woman named Anne Carr, was described by the commissioners as, quote, a poor crippled maiden lady who was supporting her mother who lived with her during the war, end quote. In her words, Anne Carr described the hardship left in Sherman's wake, quote, I got no pay for anything and had a hard time to live, for my aged mother lived with me at the time and I supported her, end quote. Some apparently gave more willingly than others, despite the resulting hardship. Elizabeth Miller, a widowed mother of six daughters, recalled, quote, When the Union Army came, I freely let the troops have anything I had till my all was gone, and then the soldiers divided hardtack with me. End quote. Hardtack, if you don't know, is a kind of cracker made from two ingredients flour and water. It's bland hard as a brick, and is the lowest, meagerest tier of sustenance imaginable. Such cases illustrate, just as we've seen before back home in the Shoals, how the war played out both on and far off the battlefield. The war was waged between designing generals with standing armies, but fed and subsidized at every step by hearth and home. The pain of the country's bloody self-annihilation was felt not only in the wounds of soldiers, but in the heavy hearts and empty bellies of non-combatants on the home front. And as the weary year 1864 faded further into the coming bitter winter months, the tenor of exasperation in the southern population, especially in the Tennessee Valley, became increasingly desperate, as they had less and less and less to give even as requisitions were heavier than ever. As we saw last time, the Confederate Army faced serious existential threats beyond the battlefield, namely regarding absenteeism, morale, and adequate provisions. On October 17, 1864, General Pierre-Gustave Touton Beauregard assumed command of the Confederate Military Division of the West, nominally taking control of Hood's army, while Hood essentially retained de facto control in the field. 
In his official message to the troops as he took command, between loftily optimistic predictions of eventual victory, Beauregard doubled down on his appeals to AWOL soldiers to not give up the fight, and for those liable for conscription to stop skirting impressment. Quote, there are men enough in the country, liable and able for service, to accomplish the result. To all such, I earnestly appeal to report promptly to their respective commands, and let those who cannot go see to it that none remain at home who are able to strike a blow in this critical and decisive hour. To those soldiers of the army who are absent from their commands without leave, I appeal in the name of their brave comrades, with whom they have had in the past so often shared the privations of camp and the dangers of the battlefield to return at once to their duty. To all such as shall report to their respective commands in response to this appeal within the next thirty days, an amnesty is hereby granted. Sherman, in his memoir, described Beauregard's orders on taking command as being, quote, full of alarm and desperation, end quote. Personally, I see more grit in Beauregard's rhetoric than Sherman appears to give him credit for. And as his goal was to inspire confidence and light the fire in the troops, many of whom were losing the will to fight, his overly optimistic rhetoric is more calculated than naive. Consider this phrase, quote, The history of the past, written in the blood of their comrades, but foreshadows the glorious future which lies before them. Inspired with these bright promises of success, I make this appeal to the men and women of my country to lend me the aid of their earnest and cordial cooperation. End quote. And yet, it's also clear that Beauregard's position was not enviable, and the odds appeared to stack evermore against the Confederate cause. Even as commander of the military division of the West, in these orders, Beauregard used the word appeal six times. While troops were AWOL and Hood unable to shake Sherman off of Atlanta or even meet his unified force in open battle, all Beauregard realistically could do was appeal and offer increasingly unrealistic assurances of eventual success at the end of a very rocky road ahead. By the 19th of October, Sherman's army was straddling the Alabama-Georgia state line along the southeastern flank of Lookout Mountain and the valley of the Chattooga River as they pursued Hood's army down the Coosa River in the direction of Gadsden. That day, Sherman made his headquarters at Somerville, Georgia, and wrote several extraordinary pieces of correspondence to Washington. As every indication showed Hood was giving up Georgia and moving west, Sherman was more resolute than ever that the time had come to break off for the seacoast. He explained this grand design to General Halleck, quote, I shall pursue him as far as Galesville. The enemy will not venture toward Tennessee except around by Decatur. I propose to send the Fourth Corps back to General Thomas and leave him with that corps, the garrisons and new troops, to defend the line of the Tennessee, and, with the rest, push into the heart of Georgia and come out at Savannah, destroying all the railroads of the state." End quote. Even with this clear direction in mind, many variables remained up in the air. 
For one, the ultimate target of Sherman's march, whether Savannah, Charleston, or the mouth of the Appalachicola, was left deliberately undecided. As Sherman explained, quote, I must have alternates, else, being confined to one route, the enemy might so oppose that delay and want would trouble me. But, having alternates, I can take so eccentric a course that no general can guess at my objective. End quote. And what's more, Hood's own destination, even at this stage, remained unclear. He had gone to Gadsden, obviously enough, but where he intended to move from there was still unclear from the Federal perspective, at least. Even as Sherman proposed to send Thomas more reinforcements in Middle Tennessee, he discredited the idea of Hood going to Tennessee, and instead hypothesized he would unite with Beauregard further to the south around Anniston, Alabama. Regardless of Hood's eventual movement, Sherman underscored his earlier position that the Union Army must in all cases take the offensive. Sherman would halt at Galesville, Alabama, just long enough to observe that Hood was really out of the way. The plan he had in mind was nothing less than unleashing total war upon the untouched, ripened fields of Georgia, as he described in his characteristic flamboyant style. Quote, this movement is not purely military or strategic, but it will illustrate the vulnerability of the South. They don't know what war means, but when the rich planters of the Oconee and Savannah see their fences and corn and hogs and sheep vanish before their eyes, they will have something more than a mean opinion of the Yanks. Even now, our poor mules laugh at the fine cornfields, and our soldiers riot on chestnuts, sweet potatoes, pigs, chickens, etc. The poor people come to me and beg as for their lives, but my answer is, your friends have broken our railroads which supplied us bountifully, and you cannot suppose our soldiers will suffer when there is abundance within reach. I am going into the very bowels of the Confederacy, and propose to leave a trail that will be recognized fifty years hence." End quote. Sherman ordered the railroad to be repaired back to Chattanooga just long enough to evacuate the sick and wounded and what he lovingly called surplus trash, leaving no liabilities beyond Chattanooga after November 1st. And to General Thomas, his fateful instructions were as follows. Quote, I want you to remain in Tennessee and take command of all my division not actively present with me. Hood's army may be set down at 40,000 of all arms fit for duty. He may follow me or turn against you. If you can defend the line of the Tennessee in my absence of three months, it is all I ask. End quote. Meanwhile, General Hood stocked up on provisions at Gadsden, including, crucially, shoes for his troops, and considered his own course. At that moment, Hood still had not totally given up hope that striking the supply lines at Sherman's rear somewhere near the Tennessee River in East Alabama would compel him to let go of Georgia or else starve, cut off and isolated in hostile territory. As he explained, quote, I determined to cross the Tennessee River at or near Gunter's Landing and strike the enemy's communications again near Bridgeport, force him to cross the river also to obtain supplies, and thus we should at least recover our lost territory. End quote. 
Hood apparently did not realize that Sherman by now already intended to help himself to the bounty of the untouched fertile countryside to the south and east, but instead conceived of him rather anachronistically as still being tethered to the railroad like an umbilical cord. More importantly, however, Hood did not consider that Sherman was finished dancing to Hood's tune. Although he aspired to regain lost territory by going to Tennessee as a minimal token of success, he did not realize that the main object of trying to force Sherman to react to the move was no longer a viable strategy. Nevertheless, regardless of the intent behind the move, Hood now set his sights on crossing the Tennessee River. He explained to Lieutenant General Taylor from Gadsden on October 20th, quote, I will move tomorrow for Guntersville on the Tennessee. Give me all the assistance you can to get my supplies to Tuscumbia, end quote. Corresponding with this movement was a shift in his supply base to Tuscumbia, which was realistically the furthest point east the Confederates could hope to use the railroad without substantial federal interference. He further clarified these instructions on October 23rd, quote, The railroad from Jacksonville to Selma will be abandoned as a means of supplying the Army of Tennessee, the base having been transferred from Jacksonville to Tuscumbia. Henceforth, the lines of communication for Army supplies to that point will be the Mobile and Ohio and the Memphis and Charleston railroads, end quote. And with that, Tuscumbia, Alabama became Hood's next base of supply. Like a gravitational pull, the mass of this decision drew events steadily closer to the shoals. Conditions were still dynamic, however, and missteps on the Confederate side continued to hamper the execution of Hood's preferred strategy. As we saw, Hood intended to cross the Tennessee River near Gunnersville, some 50 miles above the head of the shoals. However, he needed to make the move in concert with Forrest's cavalry, stationed 150 miles to the west at Corinth, Mississippi, in order to protect his cumbersome baggage train, as he explained in his retrospective report. Quote, Orders had been sent by General Beauregard to General Forrest to move with his cavalry into Tennessee. Unfortunately, however, these orders did not reach him in time. As I had not a sufficient cavalry force without his to protect my trains in Tennessee, I was compelled to delay the crossing and move further down the river to meet him. End quote. Hood's design was simply unfolding too quickly for the woefully inadequate chain of communication to keep pace. Nor was the clunky and convoluted Confederate chain of command in the West deft enough to respond sufficiently. Beauregard had only just sent orders to General Taylor the previous day, October 22nd, stating, ironically, quote, In order to save time, I desire you should attend as soon as possible to the following matters. Order Forrest and Roddy to enter as soon as practicable into communication, by letter or otherwise, with General Hood, at some point between Gunnersville and Decatur, Alabama, and to remain subject to his orders for the present, end quote. Hood could not simply send orders to Forrest. Beauregard had to order Taylor to order Forrest to report to Hood. 
And even so, the wording that actually came from Beauregard does not in the least communicate the urgency of Forrest joining Hood's command, stating merely, quote, Major General Forrest, as soon as practicable after executing his present instructions, will promptly report to General J.B. Hood in Middle Tennessee for orders, end quote. General Taylor doesn't appear to have correctly evaluated the situation either, stating in his own communication to Forrest on October 23rd, quote, General Hood moved on the 21st instant to Gunnersville on the Tennessee River and has probably by this time crossed that stream with his army. I have also directed Brigadier General Roddy to cooperate with General Hood and do all in his power to divert the enemy's attention by threatening his communications, attacking Huntsville, or such other demonstrations as will best assist General Hood without leaving North Alabama unprotected. End quote. To Roddy, he repeated his incorrect assumption that Hood would probably have already crossed the Tennessee River at Gunnersville by the time he got the message. Tasking him largely with overseeing the repair of the railroad from Corinth, Mississippi to Cherokee, Alabama, Taylor instructed that virtually all of the work should be carried out by enslaved African Americans brought by rail from faraway Mobile and Demopolis. Additionally, captured black servicemen would be impressed to labor on the railroad, as Taylor explained, quote, In construction of field works, etc., we must rely almost entirely upon the labor of captured Negroes, as this section of country in which the work is to be done will afford very few hands, it being almost stripped of slaves, End quote. As we've seen before, Compulsory participation by enslaved BIPOC in the Confederate war effort was still factoring into the Confederate strategy even at this late stage, and even as formerly enslaved men joined federal regiments at great peril, playing active and gallant roles to subdue the rebellion, there was always the risk that capture could mean return to bondage. It's a stunning contrast to realize that simultaneously within the Tennessee Valley, on the one hand, enslaved and captured BIPOC were forced to labor to aid the Confederate war effort, while others voluntarily manned federal garrisons at such critical points as Decatur. This garrison, in only a matter of days, will prove beyond a doubt the capacities and capabilities of black servicemen to serve with bravery and heroism in defiance of prevailing attitudes. General Taylor, by October 24th, had dropped the probably from his dispatches of Hood's movements and was reporting, quote, General Hood has crossed the Tennessee River at Gunner's Landing and is marching into Middle Tennessee, end quote, as though it were an established fact. Sherman, too, on October 23rd, was still incorrect about Hood's whereabouts, more incorrect than General Taylor, who at least knew Hood's cardinal direction and general design. Yet, ironically, Sherman still correctly saw the big picture. Writing to General Slocum from Galesville, Alabama, quote, Hood is doubtless now at Blue Mountain, and Forrest over about Corinth and Tuscumbia, hoping by threatening Tennessee to make me quit Georgia. We are piling up men in Tennessee, enough to attend to them, and leave me free to go ahead. End quote. 
He concluded his dispatch with his characteristic ruthless pragmatism and dark humor. Quote, we find abundance of corn and potatoes out here and enjoy them much. They cost nothing a bushel. If Georgia can afford to break our railroads, she can afford to feed us. Please preach this doctrine to men who go forth and are likely to spread it. End quote. Defying the ability of friend and foe alike to adequately track his movements, Hood was certainly not at Blue Mountain, nor was he across the river at Gunnersville. According to Hood, his inability to unite with Forrest compelled him to move further downriver, nearer to the supply base at Tuscumbia and the friendly garrison at Corinth, rather than risk crossing north of the Tennessee. In only a matter of hours, however, any doubt or misunderstanding about his true movements would be conclusively and dramatically dispelled. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll examine the dramatic action at Decatur and set the stage for the shoals returning to the spotlight as the pace of action intensifies. Please stay with us. Meanwhile, Federal forces left behind at the Shoals watched nervously as Forrest still lurked off stage to the west in North Mississippi, and it looked more and more like Hood would unite with him for a joint push into Middle Tennessee. As usual, the lack of reliable reports was clouding the waters and causing sound decision-making to be challenging. Scouting, therefore, was more important than ever to channel the most up-to-the-minute reports of Confederate movements to the high command. General Thomas sent orders to General Granger on October 23rd, quote, I wish you to send out reliable scouts and ascertain the truth of the reports of Forrest's being near Florence and of Dick Taylor's presence at Bear Creek. Notify General Croxton of my wishes for reliable information, end quote. Granger responded that he had only just heard from Croxton the previous day from the vicinity of Florence, and he made no mention of any rebel forces in the area. Later that day, upon receipt of Thomas's orders, Croxton reported to General Thomas himself from Florence, stating, quote, Dispatch received. We'll endeavor to determine the truth of the rumor. Three gunboats came to Waterloo on the 22nd, shelled the town and woods, saw nobody, and returned. Rebels across the river, and disposed to be very familiar. End quote. It appears in this instance, the only transgression committed by the little town of Waterloo was it happened to be near where General Forrest was thought to be. In any event, the critical developments for Croxton and the Shoals would ultimately come from the east, not the west. On October 25th, Hood's army entered Somerville in Morgan County, Alabama, a mere 14 miles from the Union stronghold at Decatur. The Federal officers had been attentively scrutinizing the unfolding Confederate movements for several days and were aware of Hood's intention to move west and cooperate with Forrest, Roddy, and Taylor in the vicinity of Tuscumbia. It was clear Decatur especially was now seriously threatened, as Granger later summarized, quote, All the information it was possible to obtain through the most efficient and reliable scouts indicated a large increase of force on the south side of the river, and an evident intention on the part of the Confederate leaders to attack this place, end quote. 
The defensive works at Decatur were extensive and formidable, enveloping a semicircle around the city with the Tennessee River as its terminus on either end. The problem was Granger had no more than 1,800 men to hold the fortifications. Granger repeatedly telegraphed General Thomas as late as 7 p.m. on October 25th, begging for reinforcements, requests which were only minimally granted. Lessons from Forrest's raid, no doubt, were still fresh on everyone's mind, and it was not deemed wise to leave only skeleton crews to guard the railroad blockhouses. Thomas, though he could not readily spare more men, could at least offer Granger some pugnacious rhetoric, stating, quote, Do not allow yourself to be stampeded, but be prepared to contest to the death any attempt of the enemy to cross the river. End quote. At that moment, Granger wasn't even in Decatur. He had just arrived in Huntsville from Bridgeport, meaning, ironically, Hood's army was actually closer to Decatur than he was. On the morning of Wednesday, October 26th, Colonel Charles Doolittle of the 18th Michigan Infantry, commanding the post of Decatur in Granger's absence, continued a task which had become somewhat routine, ordering out scouting parties to scan the surrounding countryside for any and every indication of Confederate movements. According to Colonel Doolittle, quote, on the morning of the 26th, I sent out two parties of 50 each on the Somerville and Cortland roads. The one on the Somerville road met a pretty strong force of the enemy about three miles out and were obliged to retire. From the fact that this regiment, the 10th Indiana Cavalry, had only been mounted and equipped as cavalry the day before, I was somewhat of the opinion that the officer in charge had overestimated the force of the enemy, which he named at 300 to 400, and not expecting the advance of Hood's army for a day or two at least." End quote. This moment of skepticism, however, was quickly dispelled when, at 1.30 p.m., sentries on the Somerville Road brought news that the Confederates were advancing in force. Doolittle rode out to see for himself and found the Confederate columns forming into a line of battle. Ordering Lieutenant Colonel Prosser of the 2nd Tennessee Cavalry to hold the skirmishers in check, Doolittle returned to the main fortification to order forward reinforcements. The nature of the emergency, apparently, did not yet sink in for everyone, and he had to order the men to put some pep in their step. Quote, they were moving at a walk, and hearing firing, I rode to the head of the column and directed Major Williamson to trot and to report to Lieutenant Colonel Prosser. End quote. Once artillery was in place, forestalling further advancements on the Somerville Road, Doolittle brought forward all available forces to fortified redoubts and breastworks along the defensive ring encircling the town. One of the regiments, now literally on the front lines, was the 29th Michigan, which had just arrived in town, being one of the few regiments Granger had been granted following his appeal for reinforcements. Despite the numerical superiority of the Confederate force, the fortified position at Decatur was robust, and Doolittle's garrison held their ground against further aggressive maneuvers for the rest of the day, as he described, quote, The fight continued until dark, the enemy being unable to drive us back an inch, notwithstanding he made several attempts to charge my line in his usual boisterous manner, end quote. 
On the afternoon of the 26th, Granger received word that Decatur was under attack. He had been expecting from reliable intel that Hood's main force would try to cross further upriver at Whitesburg, and therefore, at least momentarily, downplayed the severity of the situation at Decatur. As he left Huntsville at 3.30 p.m., he telegraphed General Thomas, quote, I don't regard the attack on Decatur as serious, yet it can hardly be more than an advance of Hood's if his forces are there at all, End quote. In his retrospective report, he paints this skepticism in a slightly different light, quote, I telegraphed to the general commanding department, stating that I did not think the attack upon Decatur as yet serious, as it could hardly be more than the advance of Hood's army, the entire of it not having had time to arrive before Decatur. My suppositions proved to be correct, as the attack was made by a detachment of Walthall's division, Stuart's Corps." End quote. As late as the morning of the 26th, Granger was requesting a thousand men and a battery of artillery to be sent to Whitesburg, and General Thomas asked for a similar force to watch the river at Claysville, opposite Gunnersville. Despite the benefit of hindsight shaping his narrative that he correctly assumed only a part of Hood's force was now assailing Colonel Doolittle's scant garrison, it's clear from correspondence that Granger's reasoning was much less accurate, and he did not expect Hood to try and cross at Decatur at all. Yet, as he arrived on the scene at five o'clock, he quickly learned the situation was more serious than he had anticipated. He telegraphed General Thomas, quote, Major Williamson, 10th Indiana Cavalry, who has been out on our picket lines until dark, reports the force of the enemy increasing. He estimates them at not less than 10,000 now. From every appearance as reported to me, they certainly mean work, end quote. Granger renewed his call for reinforcements. At 10 p.m., General Thomas responded, quote, Your report of the 22nd instant gives the force at Decatur at 1,750 strong, and I have ordered two full and new regiments to you, which I had thought was sufficient to man your works. You must do the best you can with them. About the same number you report whipped an entire division of the enemy at Alatoona a short time since, and compelled them to withdraw with heavy loss. I will send you reinforcements as fast as I can get them, but you must hold your position at all hazards." End quote. Granger pushed back somewhat, saying, quote, Of course I shall make the best fight possible, but you must remember that our works here are much more extensive than at Alatoona, and 2,000 here is nothing more than 1,000 there. I feel great responsibility, as the place is of such importance, and if taken, our pontoons will fall into the hands of the enemy. My anxiety is not to render doubtful so important a point. We, if attacked, shall not only have one division, but the whole of Hood's army, Roddy, etc. End quote. Reinforcements were coming, to be sure. In nearby Athens, on the evening of the 26th, Colonel Alfred Wade received word that Decatur was, quote, threatened by an unknown force, end quote, by which surely he means unknown in quantity. He sent a detachment of 100, but the next day began moving the remainder of his command by rail the 12 miles south to Decatur. The going was rough, as he described, quote, at midnight, I ordered the artillery to be hitched up and commenced the march over that horrible corduroy road, which was rendered almost impassable by the late rains. End quote. 
Granger cautioned him as well, stating he would have to, quote, slip into Decatur with my command before daylight, as the enemy commanded the pontoon bridge and the river road with his sharpshooters, end quote. Accordingly, Wade and his reinforcements entered Decatur at 2 o'clock a.m., apparently unnoticed, or at least uncontested. Elsewhere, further afield, more substantial reinforcements were ordered for the defense of Middle Tennessee. On October 26th, satisfied that Hood had really moved west beyond Gunnersville, Sherman ordered General David Stanley with the 4th Corps, 15,000 strong, back to Stevenson, Alabama. He hesitated a moment more at Galesville, waiting to see what would be the fate of Decatur, and whether the long-awaited move to the seacoast could really begin, as he explained to Halleck on the morning of the 27th, quote, I will await a few days to hear what head Hood makes about Decatur, and may yet turn to Tennessee, but it would be a great pity to take a step backward. I think it would be better even to let him ravage the state of Tennessee, provided he does not gobble up too many of our troops. General Thomas is well alive to the occasion, and better suited to the emergency than any man I have." End quote. And so, for a moment, on the morning of October 27th, the fate of the course of the war in the West rested on the shoulders of Granger, Doolittle, and their meager garrison at Decatur, Alabama, watching anxiously from their breastworks as John Bell Hood and the Army of Tennessee continuously arrived along their entire front. A tense standoff took shape throughout the day on the 27th, as reinforcements arrived on both sides. The gunboat Stone River had arrived to offer further support, and by the end of the day, the Federal garrison, by Granger's estimation, had grown to 3,000 men. This meant, with Hood's whole army brought to bear, the Federal garrison was still outnumbered by about 10 to 1. By the end of the day on the 27th, the Confederates had completely encircled the defensive works across the entire Union front, a distance, to the best of my reckoning, about three and a half miles. The weather remained a dismal backdrop to the dramatic scene, yet Granger and the garrison remained confident of the strength of their position, as he wrote to General Thomas on the 27th, quote, The country is yet covered with a dense fog. We have everything well prepared, and the command is in excellent spirits, notwithstanding the torrent of rain last night, and I think I am safe in promising a fine result if the enemy attack." End quote. But then, early on the 28th, the pace of action intensified. At 3 a.m. on Friday, October 28th, the Confederates emerged from the dense fog, surprising the Federal pickets. Colonel Wade, who had only just arrived an hour or so earlier, described the hullabaloo as the Confederates made their assault. Quote, I had just laid down and was getting into a doze when the rattle of musketry on the picket line started me up, and soon the cheers and yells of the rebels as they charged the line convinced me that an assault was being attempted. End quote. The Confederate move was successful. They drove in the Federal pickets to the main fortification and also took possession of a series of rifle pits and a ravine, which offered a naturally defensible position. Granger described his alarmed reaction when he discovered this movement later that morning. Quote, About 9 a.m., the fog cleared away, and the work of the enemy during the night was developed. It was evident immediately that it was absolutely necessary to dislodge the enemy from this 
this position, as they perfectly covered every gun in our principal fort, and would soon render it impossible to work them with accuracy. End quote. Granger orchestrated a daring plan. On the Union right, a small detachment led by Captain Moore of the 18th Michigan, with a number of the 102nd Ohio and 13th Wisconsin regiments, were ordered to covertly move, concealed by the riverbank, around the Confederate line, sneaking up behind them and charging in a surprise attack. The artillery would then fire on the Confederate lines from the front, with a supporting column moving on the line to take advantage of the confusion. The scheme worked, as Granger described, quote, The enemy, surprised and panic-stricken by this impudent movement, rushed from the pits only to encounter a most terrible and well-directed fire of shell, canister, and musketry. Large numbers were killed or wounded, while others threw down their arms and, waving their hats in token of surrender, ran toward our advancing column. End quote. Colonel Wade, for his part, described the result of the same surprise attack. Quote, the effect was instantaneous and ludicrous in the extreme. The whole rebel line for half a mile broke to the rear without firing a shot. End quote. Bearing in mind that Civil War commanders tend to somewhat exaggerate the details of their successes in their official reports, the effect of this charge was not only strategically significant, but it had a pronounced effect upon the morale of the Union garrison, as Granger explained, quote, This affair, though of short duration, was in its results most important to us. It drove the enemy from a strong and important position, which he was not able to reoccupy, and in inspired the garrison with great confidence." End quote. On the Union left, the Confederates had established a battery at a sheltered position along the riverfront, which threatened to punch a hole into the Federal defensive front. Capitalizing on the energy resulting from the successful surprise attack on the right, Granger immediately ordered an assault to take the battery, as he described. Quote, I immediately, upon the heels of the successful sortie upon our right, ordered Colonel Doolittle to send out the 14th U.S. Colored Infantry to charge this battery. End quote. Charging and overtaking an artillery battery was a grave task before them, but one which the men of the 14th USCI did not shy away from, as their commander, Colonel Thomas Morgan, explained, quote, they were cautioned that a battery was to be charged and taken if only ten men survived to take it. They manifested no undue excitement or fear, but seemed anxious for the work. End quote. They were not to be thrown to the wolves, though. They were to be supported by the gunboat Stone River and a Union battery planted on the north bank of the river. The combined effect would be a crossfire into the Confederate position. As the gunboat and battery bombarded the Confederate battery from the right, the 14th USCI would assault and overtake them from the front. At about 12 noon, moving under cover of the riverbank, the infantry managed to surprise the Confederates, and with a brisk charge were able to overtake their position. The Confederate line reformed quickly, however, and the order was given to retreat, after first disabling two of the artillery guns. Fighting at this point apparently became brutal, intimate, and hand-to-hand, -hand, as Morgan described, quote, A fleet foot saved the regiment. As Captain Rolfe was retreating, a rebel seized him by the collar and paid the forfeit of life by a stroke from the captain's sword.
One of the enemy laid hands upon a soldier of the 14th, and the soldier dispatched him with the stock of his musket. End quote. The combined effect of these two daring movements, besides resisting the Confederate advance, had a rousing effect upon the soldiers in the surrounded Federal garrison at Decatur. Granger explained, praising the gallantry of the 14th USCI, quote, The action of the colored troops under Colonel Morgan was everything that could be expected or desired of soldiers. They were cool, brave, and determined and under the heaviest fire of the enemy exhibited no signs of confusion. The effect upon our troops of these two brilliantly successful sorties coming in such quick succession was most cheering." End quote. All the while, reinforcements continued to arrive and were placed to fill in the gaps along the federal defensive works. According to Granger, though, quote, there was heavy firing all day along our entire line, but no attempt on the part of the enemy to make an assault. End quote. The reinforcements that arrived in many cases were less than satisfactory, as Granger described them to General Thomas. Quote, all the reinforcements thus far, except about 200, are greener than grass. End quote. At 3 p.m., the steamboat General Thomas arrived on the scene and joined the Stone River and the battery on the north bank in a renewed bombardment of the Confederate artillery, which the 14th USCI had briefly captured earlier in the afternoon. This time, the combined effect of three different sources of artillery bombardment on their flank was too much for the Confederates, as Granger here described. Quote, it was impossible for men to withstand this attack. They deserted their guns, a portion of them retreating to their main line, while many of them rushed down the bank and sought the protection of the trees at the water's edge. The guns of the boats, double-shotted with canister, were turned upon them at a distance of scarcely 300 yards and poured in a terrible fire, and many bodies were afterward found in the river." End quote. It was now nearly four o'clock, and the sky would have been getting dark, causing the day's fighting to come to a halt. But activity behind the front lines certainly did not cease. Granger recalled, quote, During the night of the 28th, it was evident that some general movement was in progress along the enemy's line, but a dense fog having again enveloped us, it was impossible to gain any clue to it. End quote. By morning light on the 29th, however, it was clear to Granger that the Confederates were withdrawing from their positions, quote, sending out a reconnoitering party under Colonel Morgan, 14th U.S. Colored Infantry. I ascertained positively that only a strong rear guard remained, end quote. The 14th USCI skirmished with the robust Confederate rear guard, but it was too strong and they were compelled to retreat back to the safety of the Union line. The final action of the battle took place about 4 p.m. on the 29th, when Granger sent out a strong detachment, quote, and drove the enemy out of his last line of rifle pits, and at dark, the original picket line was reestablished, end quote. I doubt that Hood earnestly tried to overtake the Union position and cross the Tennessee River at Decatur. For one thing, the conditions which prevented him from crossing at Gunnersville were still in play, namely that he had not yet established communication with Forrest to act in concert with him on the north side of the river. And secondly, with his supply base already being established at Tuscumbia and friendly forces in the neighborhood of Corinth, with federal presence much weaker at the Shoals to boot, 
It would have been senseless slaughter to try and dislodge the Federals from Decatur, when an essentially open door lay just to the west at the Shoals. Granger added a shade to this line of reasoning when he reported to General Steedman, quote, In my last telegram, I omitted to mention another reason why I think Hood will go to Tuscumbia before crossing. He was evidently out of supplies. His men were all grumbling. The first thing the prisoners asked for was something to eat. Hood could not get anything if he should cross this side of Rogersville, end quote. I personally think that Hood kept the Federal garrison just occupied enough to not be a nuisance as he moved west, but did not seriously attempt a siege. Granger himself at least partially admitted this to be the case, as he summarized, quote, And though for a day or two occasional bodies of the enemy's cavalry appeared in our front, nothing like an attack was made, end quote. Naturally, though, it was in Granger's own best interest to play up the severity of the Confederate attack, to cast the Federal victory on his watch in a shinier light. Hood, in his retrospective report, does not even mention Decatur, and rather hastily summarizes the move west from Gadsden to Tuscumbia, saying, quote, Orders had been sent by General Beauregard to General Forrest to move with his cavalry into Tennessee. Unfortunately, however, these orders did not reach him in time. As I had not sufficient cavalry force without his to protect my trains in Tennessee, I was compelled to delay the crossing and move farther down the river to meet him. End quote. And yet, as the little Federal garrison stared down the whole of Hood's army, more than 30,000 strong, I'm sure the sense of victory was electric as the Confederates withdrew on the morning of October 29, 1864. Colonel Doolittle was glowing with praise for the garrison. Quote, our garrison never exceeded 5,000 men, with 19 pieces of artillery. I must say, however, that I never saw troops in better spirits, and their determination was strong not to give up the works. Through rain, day and night, with loss of sleep and hard work, I never heard any complaint. End quote. Doolittle goes on and on, mentioning by name the subordinate officers to whom he felt a sense of gratitude, concluding, quote, Again, I say I cannot praise too highly the conduct of all, and I would respectfully suggest that all engaged be ordered to inscribe upon their banners Decatur, end quote. Furthermore, the importance of holding Decatur was apparent from the perspective of Federal High Command. On the evening of the 28th, Sherman informed Thomas, quote, Granger must hold Hood as long as he can. Hood won't assault. Both Alatuna and Resaca beat him off, and neither was as strong as Decatur. Notify all commanders of fortified places that numbers are nothing. They must hold their posts against a million. End quote. To hear it from Granger, his men were roused and ready to move heaven and earth. He wrote to General Thomas at 2.40 a.m. on October 29th, quote, The men are as wide awake as fleas and as active and are in good spirits, and I am confident will do everything in their power. I am prepared for any attack that the enemy may make in the morning, End quote. And even though the attack never came, the Federal Army as a whole in the Shoals was nothing close to being in the clear. It was now Brigadier General Croxton who would find himself under the gun, with nothing like the security of the fortifications at Decatur to help him hold his ground. On the night of October 28th, 
General Thomas ordered Croxton, in essence, to report how prepared he was to resist the Confederates crossing the river. Quote, I wish you to make me a report as to the feasibility of defending the line of the Tennessee River by blockhouses or small redoubts at the various fords and crossings, manned by a small force in each. If you think this can be done, designate the number of blockhouses you think it will require, about the force required at each, and the location it would be best to select. End quote. By now, it was far too late for this kind of preparation. At 4 a.m. on the 29th, before Granger even realized the Confederates had withdrawn from Decatur, Croxton reported, quote, Major Root, 8th Iowa Cavalry, reports the enemy crossing river at the mouth of Cypress Creek, two miles below Florence. I will move down at once with all the force that can be spared from guarding the river and try and drive them back, end quote. Reinforcements were moving as quickly as they could to Croxton's aid. General Stanley, with the 4th Corps, was ordered by rail from Rossville, Georgia, all the way to Pulaski and Athens. Sherman even dispatched Major General Schofield to report to General Thomas from Georgia. And closer to the scene, General Hatch, with his cavalry at Clifton, Tennessee, was ordered to provide support to Croxton at Florence. All of the players in the coming showdown were moving to take their places on the scene. The pace of action at the Shoals was intensifying, as the contingency that Hood would invade Tennessee behind Sherman's back was galvanizing into reality. Sherman, with his characteristic egotistical flippance, remarked to Thomas at noon on the 29th, quote, I hear that the enemy has passed to the west of Decatur, and therefore will cross about Florence. I don't see how Beauregard can support his army, but Jeff Davis is desperate, and his men will undertake anything possible. End quote. The Confederates now massing at the shoals would certainly undertake anything possible, and bitter, desperate days were ahead. Join us next time as we examine the standoff between Union and Confederate forces in Lauderdale County in November 1864, ahead of Hood's long-awaited, daring move north into Tennessee, and see what a mammoth impact the fighting had upon the local population in some of the darkest days of the war. Thank you so much for joining me.